I'm Kimberly Seapal. Today we talk with Dr. Tim Erig. He is a palliative care physician that wants to change how individuals face end of life. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. So, first of all, thank you so much for taking your time out. I'm a big fan of yours. Um, welcome to Death by Design. Likewise. <laughs> thank you. Tell me, Dr. Tim, as some of your patients call you, is how, what, why did you become interested in palliative care? Uh, serendipity. Um, you know, I, I came to medicine very late. I uh, started med school in my early 30s. And I was, uh, as I've shared with others, uh, somewhat disillusioned with the system of medicine and the way that we deliver care or lack thereof. Um, when I started my internal medicine residency, I had every intention of completing it, but finding, you know, some other occupation to uh, uh, participate in until I met a, uh, who is now a good friend and a, and a colleague who exposed me to what is palliative care, true palliative care. Um, you know, I'd always been fascinated and enjoyed the experience uh, of medicine needing care for the sickest of the sick and really encompassing not just the clinical, but the behavioral, the social, economic, uh, not just the patient, but the whole family and, and their care, caregiver circle. And when he said, you know, this is, this is what palliative care is. And I thought, Hey, this is something I could do. And uh, I was fortunate to uh, have the opportunity to pursue it my entire career. So that's, that's how I came to it. Well, you, you shared something with me that I hope is okay to share on online. you you were also interested in film, correct? Yes. Yes. Not, uh, not in front of the camera by any means, but um, I've always been a, cinema buff and have always wondered what it would like to go to be, excuse me, what it would be like to go to film school. And I moved to Los Angeles for a very brief period of time, uh, about 25 years ago and was working for new Regency productions, um, on the Warner brothers lot and thinking about film school, um, kind of the environment, uh, the culture of Hollywood, really antithetical to, to who I am and, and what I think good cinema is. So I uh, uh, had a very short time there and ended up where I think I was supposed to be. And so uh, I know your background is heavily invaded, inundated with film. And I think that's one of the things that draws us together. As we had talked before, it's about the storytelling. It's about the human experience and expressing that through different mediums. Um, at some level to recreate a true sense of community and, and, and bring us all together that, uh, that is one of the most powerful things about film and, and really any endeavor, you know, film has an audience, healthcare has an audience. Uh, I think in the grander scale, the stage is, is life and it is the human experience. If that makes any sense. 
Oh, it uh, absolutely makes sense. And I would tell you, I never thought leaving the live television and world of um, fiction would stumbly, I stumbled upon what were authentic and really true stories that not only were, were really cool to translate, but really just did a paradigm shift in my own life about applying what I've learned from the bedside of individuals facing a, a very immediate end of life. Um, it, it's changed me. And, you know, to the point that that I apply the lessons and to the point that I'm writing this book. And the, and I feel like that is a mutual admiration between us because I get so caught up in the story um, and real stories. You, you know, the, the thing is though, medical language and the medical culture is so foreign from the individual living in the community. And a, a lot of people you know, when you hear of hospice and palliative care, they have no clue what that means. And you've been practicing palliative care for a long time. So I wanted to get your definition of what is palliative care? So great question. Um, you know, simply put, it's about living. It's about life. And it is, at its most fundamental level, it is defined by the individual. Um, so as a, a healthcare provider, I have a certain clinical scientific, you know, skill set, um, symptom management, understand the physiology and the interaction of all these, you know, different um, diagnoses and, and entities. But at the end of the day, you know, to transcend medicine, to truly care for a human being means to ask, what is sacred to you? in the setting of whatever you're dealing with. You know, it could be a hangnail or it could be a widely metastatic cancer. And where we go with that knowledge is what's important. You know, there's always a litany of things we can do to people. And again, it's been proven time and time again, um, you know, for that most vulnerable population, most of the things that get done neither lead to longer life or increased quality. Um, and my experiences early on were we weren't asking the right questions and we certainly weren't listening or hearing if somebody happened to offer up, you know, what is sacred to them. That should be the, the cornerstone upon which everything we do. So palliative care is based on what is important to you after you have um, truly been informed you know, what's going on clinically with you and what the realistic outcomes uh, are going to be. Not to be mean, not to be scary, but to be absolutely transparent. And true, um, truly, I would say it's telling the truth. It's uh, informed consent. If you have A, B, and C, that usually leads to X, Y, and Z. I can't change the line in the sand for anybody. I honor that point in time. Let's talk about how you want to live. And so more to your point, the definition of palliative and hospice is how does an individual want to live their life, not just be alive, but live their life predicated on what is sacred to them, uh, given some very difficult uh, clinical entity. 
it's not about death. It's about living the human experience of the last chapters of life. And I think you really put it, you've done a couple of TEDx talks, a couple of, is it TEDx or TED Talks? Uh, it was a TEDx that actually graduated to TED. So, <laughs> Well, some, I will say, I remember you talking about a couple of patient stories and about asking the right questions. And it ended up being that when you opened it up and you listened, what the desire of the patient, now it didn't have anything to do with pain or, or suffering. It had to do with fishing or connecting with a family member. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of your experiences with the, those patients and, and asking the right questions? Sure. Um, again, I think I fell into that as an early practitioner. Um, and the story that, that you're referencing was truly my very first patient with, uh, with, uh, my long white coat, and um, I was asked to give the diagnosis and prognosis of a gentleman who presented, and, and after a brief workup, was found to have widely metastatic cancer. And, you know, at the end of the day, in layman's terms, I knew he was going to die from this disease. And so, short of, you know, trying to go into all the pathophysiology and this and that, um, it was about just holding his hand and his wife's hand and, and breathing. And he knew patients know whether it's six days or six weeks or six months. Um, it was really listening to that little voice in his heart and honoring it and saying, yeah, you're right. Um, uh, there is nothing good about this. So how do you want to spend your time? And he said, with my family and, and fishing. And part of that story, which I haven't told before, um, which really encompasses the bigger, true nature of palliative care, it's the journey not just for the patient, but for their family. He had two daughters, and one was bipolar. And I found out um, a week and a half later after he had died that she had committed suicide because of the death of her father. And so this journey for me didn't end when he was discharged. It was uh, continuing to walk this path with the family as they dealt with uh, various levels of grief. And, you know, it was a very um, significant moment in my career where I realized it's not just about writing orders. It's not about seeing someone in clinic. It's not about um, the long white coat. It is about the journey, and that journey is with those that are encircling the individual. Um, so it was a very profound interaction and one that I think of quite frequently. You know, the one thing that I don't think the medical culture does very well is it pauses and reflects back on the clinician. And whether you're in hospice care or palliative care, I mean, it te tends to be like you're dealing with a lot of loss. I mean, how do you as a provider take care of yourself in order to keep giving to these types of situations at the bedside of families and then sometimes tragic situations after that, that death, how do you take care of yourself? 
another good question. Tough question. Um, again, it is caring for myself one day at a time. And I think inherent in your question is one that I hear a lot is how do you deal with such tragedy and grief? And it's so sad. And, um, yes, yes, it is. It can be very, very hard. However, when one sees the, um, liberation, uh, by telling the truth, whether it's good news or bad news, right? And that people embrace life, not because I've done anything other than tell them the truth and tell them that they have a choice. If they want to go fishing, then we can try to go fishing. So when you give someone a modicum of control in an otherwise uncontrollable situation, you know, and and the bigger framework is life is very ambiguous. And, and what are we afraid of? We're afraid of the unknown. Throw some cancer in there and we're really afraid of the unknown. When you give somebody the pen to try to, you know, write that last chapter or two or three, you're giving them control. And then they can live and learn and love and grow. And so it's it's rewarding and fulfilling. It's not as morose and tragic as, as people from the outside might think. You know, it's a very intimate journey. And some of the greatest, you know, guttural laughter sessions I've had are, are with people who are, you know, facing the end of their life. It's very honest and frank and um, pure. Um, having said that, it, it sets me up. I've really worked hard and, and to be mindful of being in the moment. And so when I come home to my three children and my wife, I've got a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and a two-year-old. It is being present for them. And and the rest of the world can kind of fade away because this is the moment where we are connected as human beings. Um, but there is those, those moments that I find myself crying with patients and I find myself weeping in the car ride home. And um, it can be very, very hard to negate that portion of the experience, I think, um, short sells what I believe in, and that, you know, these times in someone's life are not a clinical diagnosis, but they're the human experience. And I am blessed uh, and honored to be present in these intimate moments with people and their families. It is fulfilling and rewarding, and it's very, very peaceful. You, you talk about truth. You talk about honesty. Are we in healthcare still having a huge issue with being honest with our patients? <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, I may have a biased perspective. Um, and, and again, you know, it's, it's focusing on the 15% that are really the sickest of the sick. And I would say a, a vast majority of times, absolutely yes. I would offer it is a constellation of um, healthcare semantics, uh, what the incentives are in healthcare, and human nature. Uh, again, for a healthcare provider or any human being to truly embrace ambiguity 
and to embrace that uh, the end of life or death, you know, is real. And it's not a diagnosis. You know, it's not an ICD-10 code. Um, means you have to expose a certain amount of vulnerability. And that is very, very hard. You know, we want, particularly scientists, particularly physicians, we want to do two something, you know, to a disease, to a diagnosis, rather than for and with a human being. So antithetical to the first oath we ever take, which is the Hippocratic oath, and says do no harm. Um, I think we do harm every day when we don't share with someone that, you know, you've got stage four lung cancer. You are going to die from this. And to say die is very different than no, we can't cure this. What is missing at some level is a vernacular that tells the truth. Physicians will say, well, I shared that it's not curable. Yes, but what do we hear? We don't hear dying and death. We hear not curable, very different. So, you know, it's part medicine culture. I think it's uh, the culture of our society. We're not allowed to get old or be ill unless we're on the cover of Vogue or GQ. We've done something wrong. Uh, I promise you, I'm never going to be on the cover of either of them. So um, I think the opportunities for us are to start to tell the truth as a society and to start to learn that uh, this is an inevitable journey. And I don't want to die any sooner than anyone else. Um, but we are going to age and we can do it collectively and live better and longer if we tell the truth than if we practice as we have been the last, you know, century. Um, and that's been proven time and time again. And, and that's, you know, we're not even talking about the, the, the economics of healthcare where we spend trillions of dollars and it has no value because it neither, again, increases someone's quality or length of life. I'm just talking about, you know, what does mom or dad want? Right. And how do we make that happen? So when you treat a patient facing a serious illness, I mean, what are the first things that you ask a patient? Because it seems to me, and and I know you, so <laughs> I know this is true, is that is that you tend to ask questions and shut up and listen. <laughs> and and so tell me, what are some of those questions that you ask these seriously ill patients? So it's, it's going to be a very underwhelming response, okay? I just... You know, you go through the introduction, and, and as you see him, uh, you say, you know, how are you? How you doing? And that's it. And given the opportunity, they will tell you everything. I don't, you know, most times I would never need a CAT scan or a lab test or anything. It's just taking the time to listen and hear and, and, and follow it up and say, you know, are you scared? And most people... Um, so, you know, I'm not scared of dying. And I always find it interesting that that's not what I asked. Um, you know, if you were to ask me, I'd say I'm, you know, scared of mice and spiders. But, um, you know, they that ties in, you know, I'm not scared of dying with what's your little voice telling you? What's the voice in your heart? You know, and then you start to put that puzzle together. 
the one that is resonating deeply and strongly inside someone's heart and spirit. And then that's the, that's the opiate which allows them not to be afraid. So in your experience, what are patients most afraid of when it comes to their illness, when it gets worse? What are, what are they afraid of in your experience? Fundamentally, the unknown. The unknown. And it's, it's, it's not suffering per se. That's a big one. Um, but I don't know what is going to happen next. And historically, we, we, we fill that space with um, repeated office visits and more tests and let's do another CAT scan and this and that. Um, if we know somebody is in the last chapters of their life, you know, the 15th CAT scan for staging of cancer is not going to change what path they're on. But if we fill their time with known entities, all right, I'm going to go to clinic and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Um, it takes away the ambiguity of what life is going to bring. Now, when we, in hindsight, ask people, what would you have rather done? Knowing that they didn't have to have all these tests and office visits, they feel very bitter that their time was stolen. And so um, people want the truth. People want you to know, uh, or they want to know that, someone's going to be there, right? Uh, the analogy is um, my son was afraid of the closet monster when he was younger, you know, that mysterious uh, entity that uh, only comes out in the middle of the night. And you'd come in the room, you'd turn on the light, you'd open the closet, and you would prove time and time again that, you know, it's just a closet. And so what people want to know is that you're going to come in in real time and turn on the light and be there for them. I can't predict exactly what's going to happen, but I guarantee you I'll be there for you. And so you take away that fear of the unknown and ambiguity and people are fine. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, that's a great analogy. So tell me, you were part of a really big study and tell me a little bit about the study that you were involved in, some of the outcomes, if you're willing to share those. Sure. So several years ago, uh, there was a call from uh, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare, uh, Center for Innovation, to see how we could deliver care differently for this most vulnerable population. You know, again, the sickest 15% of people around the country. And they had a several-year study, an accountable care pioneer project. So there were several thousand uh, affiliates around the country that applied for the opportunity and 32 or 34 um, hospitals were chosen out of that several thousand. They had some academic, uh, rural, urban. Um, two of the programs were rural and one happened to be in the health system that I was working in at the time. And I was asked to uh, think differently about, you know, how we can manage and care for this, this population in a very rural um, setting. It covered six counties in northwest Iowa, and it had an attributable population of about 40,000 people that would fall into this category. So uh, I was given a whiteboard and said, okay, you know, 
see what you can do. And um, I'll, I'll cut to the, to the end results. You know, the journey was one of tremendous growth and learning. And I would offer the greatest thing I could offer anybody is that there's a hundred mistakes you can make. And I made them all, you know, at least twice. Um, we started out seeing patients in the inpatient setting, but then a few weeks opened a clinic and a few weeks was going to homes, long-term care facilities. By the time the pilot project ended on December 31st of 2.15, as it was scheduled to, we had a, a robust population where we were seeing approximately 25 to 40% uh, of all the inpatients, all the people who were admitted to the hospital, they fell into a palliative paradigm. So they had um, met certain criteria for big ticket items, et cetera, repeat hospitalizations. Uh, national average is about 6%. We were anywhere from 25 to 40%. We had a full-time ambulatory clinic with multiple providers Monday through Friday or just like you and I would go to see our primary care doctor. Uh, palliative patients could come for symptom management, talk about goals of care, disease trajectory, you know, really listen in here and fine tune what's going on. Uh, they could bring their families. I've had conferences with, you know, 20 plus people and six different cell phones and all uh, with, with family members across the globe. Um, we had a robust, robust telemedicine program where I could uh, do consults any time of day or night with someone in a care facility and, uh, and see Mrs. or Mrs. Smith and then bring in their family members wherever they were. We were seeing patients in homes. We were embedded in long-term care facilities. So we were actually kind of like the, the cop on the street, you know, walking care facilities, caring for people and had clinics there. So really across the entire continuum, we were touching patients. And some of the outcomes were phenomenal. We had a 94% zero hospitalization rate. That's unheard of. You know, it's not that people couldn't come to the hospital, but figuring out what was important to them, we, we, brought, it, we brought it to them, we made it happen. They didn't have to come to the hospital. And you know, a hospital is where people are sick. And when you're, when you're seriously ill... Hospitals can be somewhat dangerous for those with uh, a lowered immune system. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, you can get sicker Absolutely. and die. Yeah. And, you know, the food's not that great. So, you know, it's, it's a double whammy. <laughs> um, right. We had, you know, the highest patient satisfaction scores out of the entire system, not just the affiliate. Right. We had, um, you know, 97% of our patients uh, thought of us favorably. And we're talking about very difficult items. And not only that, we were the service that was most likely to be recommended uh, to others by patients and caregivers. So this notion of, you know, stealing hope and bringing people down and talking about these things, I think those two statistics right there prove that uh, that's just hogwash. People want the truth, and um, you know that was consistent over several years. We were the the highest rated from a patient satisfaction standpoint. Um, 
and then, it, you know, if you look at the economic factor, and again, my, my, my role and, and everything I do is predicated on meeting you as a person where you're at. Um, if, if you need and you want uh, a cardiac catheterization, okay. You know, I'm, I'm not the one that's going to preclude you from having that. So it's not limiting care. But doing the right thing for the right reasons at the right time, we had a 70, a 70% reduction in per capita expenditures. So this is the most vulnerable, most expensive population, 90% of the healthcare dollar uh, in this country. People must have been jumping up and down. But you've discovered the secret of how we could do healthcare better. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it's fraught again with fear. Uh, it's antithetical to the bigger system of healthcare, which is a fee-for-service model, and where we look at, you know, bookending care between medicine and medicine rather than caring and caring. Um, and so, as the pilot project came to an end, we saw the system uh, very quickly transition away from this level of care coordination, even though we had irrefutable non-subtle evidence that's been corroborated by CMS, um, it doesn't, it's not cost effective at this juncture because hospital systems still make more money than they would lose. And having sat on the board of a very large hospital system for a couple of years, uh, it isn't about the patient and, and it certainly isn't about uh, the physician unless you're the physician that brings in Lots and lots of money. Um, patient is not even a part of the conversation, unfortunately. So after these these years of proving better patient-centered care, um, it sort of went nowhere? Well, they got the feather. You know, they got the, the accolades, they had the spotlight, and now they just check it off their box and move on. And I think that's uh, not limited to this particular system. Um, but that is that is the business model of healthcare. So, um, why would we change if there's no economic disincentive? You know, everything is economics. Mm. So, is that disheartening for a provider such as yourself? I, it is, but I, you know, have over the last year been working with a group. And we are poised to, you know, come forward with uh, a different model for this population that I think um, if everybody just sits tight over the next six to 12 months, there'll be a lot more in the public space about this. But it is one that uh, takes this model and embraces it and embraces it from the economic perspective as well. Not that I'm going to be, you know, living a rock and roll lifestyle, but it, it really honors that the right thing to do is to care for people. And at the highest of level, unless we change how we do that, you know, the free market economy of, of the United States of America is in jeopardy because right now it's 20% of the GDP and, and just following the number of people that are going to fall into this um, sandbox over the next couple of decades, you're looking at 60 to 70% of the GDP being spent on 15% of the population and having no value. So it is it's a much bigger conversation than, you know, does grandma who has dementia get her hip replaced? 
it's about how we live and, and what the greatest threats of this country are. And nobody talks about that. And that, that's more disheartening than the system. Um, the system is just following basic economic rules. What's disheartening is people are trying to, you know, divert our attention from the real truth. Um, and that's not something that's new today. That's, uh, that's been going on for many years. So, so talk, talk to me a little bit about your consulting group and what you're doing for some other committees and how people can find you if they want to bring you out as part of their conference or sit down as a, with some of your associates to look at this broader picture. Well, basically, uh, you can drop me an email. You can find me at um, irigmd on the web. I also have a Facebook page. And, and what's happened since a year ago when the, the TED Talk um, took place found that most industrialized countries around the world are facing the same issues. So there's people that globally have reached out, you know, Israel, Great Britain, China, um, you know, South America, Latin America, and many organizations around this country. It's primarily been those that operate outside the bigger healthcare systems who are a little more malleable to say, okay, how can we as an organization prove uh, and recreate what you've done uh, in our area here and then start to, you know, piece that together with other organizations around the country. Um, and so the opportunity is to come in and strategically look at where somebody is at, what their mission, what their vision is, what their three, five, 10 year plan is, and look at opportunities for planting the seeds of this type of, of care. Well, I think it's uh, a subject that is very important. And again, they can find you at igrigmd.com. Correct. And and I really encourage, I've seen you speak at several conferences. You're very inspirational in teaching people how to live, but also how to take care of, of patients better. Well, thank you. Can't tell you how much I appreciate your time today and your thoughts and helping us better understand palliative care and, and certain things that we can apply in our own communities. And I encourage anyone who's listening, if you need Tim's expert um, experience to drop him an email, get him to come to your community, whether it's speaking at a conference or speaking with uh, key players around a table about how can we care for for these, the seriously ill population better. Um, Tim, thank you so much. No, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.